Prime members, you can listen to 60 Minutes ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the app today. This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you can have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. This episode is brought in part to you by Audible, your go-to destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Whether you're looking for a hair-raising experience to enjoy while you're on the move or eager to dive into sinister and shocking tales, Audible has an exclusive collection of thrillers from best-selling authors that will keep you on the edge of your seat. Like James Patterson's first audio-only thriller, The Coldest Case. Experience stories like never before, where every chilling detail is brought to life by captivating sound design. Plus, as an Audible member, choose one title a month to make yours forever. And now, new members can try Audible free for 30 days. Just visit audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. That's audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to Polly is off today. I'm Lee Cowan, and this is Sunday Morning. Our summer unofficially ends this Labor Day weekend, and it ends on a pretty cloudy note. People in much of Texas and Louisiana are only beginning the process of drying out from Hurricane Harvey. Relief efforts are well underway, but the task is overwhelming, to say the least, and the road ahead looks to be a pretty long one. This morning, Mark Strassman assesses the aftermath. Everything really is bigger in Texas, even natural disasters. Tens of thousands of people whose homes were damaged or destroyed now wonder what comes next as the region faces one of the great housing challenges in U.S. history. We'll have the latest from Texas, and if you want to help, tell you what's useful and what's not ahead on Sunday morning. On a lighter topic, our Sunday profile this morning is of Alec Baldwin. He's had a long acting career, but it's his impression of one person in particular that has made him must-see viewing on Saturday Night Live. He's talking this morning with our Rita Braver. It's the impression that still has us talking. I sat down with our military, we looked at the map, and I asked the hard questions like, which one is Afghanistan? Have you gotten mostly a positive response? 60 to 75% of the people that encounter me treat me like I was Jonas Salk and I cured <laughs> polio. They walk up to me and go, my God, thank you. Later on Sunday morning, behind the scenes at SNL with Alec Baldwin. <laughs> on this Labor Day weekend, we take a look at the laborers in one small town who all have a shared vision of community. Connor Knight gives us the view from inside. When the Marvin Window and Door Company named their new CEO, his last name, didn't come as a surprise. It, it does. Like all uh, Marvins before me, I was born and raised in War Road. Paul Marvin is the fourth generation of his family to live and work in tiny War Road, Minnesota, a place where the factory floor feels like one big extended family. It's a community within a community. A window into windows. Later on Sunday morning. The name Debbie Harry might not ring a bell at first, but I bet the name Blondie does. Tracy Smith caught up with the 70s rock star for a summer song. Was it love and it was a gas? 
After four decades and 40 million albums sold, Blondie lead singer Debbie Harry is still living the dream. When you moved to New York, what were you hoping to do? You know, I always thought I wanted to be a star. Doesn't take you the stellar Debbie Harry, ahead this Sunday morning. We'll also delve into the history of the Black Panther Party and its co-founder, Bobby Seale. We'll pop in to recap some of this summer's most unusual pop-up art with Steve Hartman. We'll salute all the helping hands that pitched in after Hurricane Harvey and a lot more. Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it. Nine days after Hurricane Harvey came ashore, we're still struggling to fully comprehend its aftermath. At least 45 people are confirmed dead as of this morning, while the economic toll is estimated in the tens of billions. Mark Strassman has been there through it all. Harvey hit Texas with Old Testament wrath, a deluge along the state's Gulf Coast that dumped more than four feet of rain in four days. I thought it was just a couple feet, you know, and then I didn't think it was that deep until it was too late. I couldn't do nothing. Watery misery kept rising in Harris County, which includes Houston. By midweek, 30% of the county, 450 square miles, was underwater. I got a truck. We drove as close as we could. We're hoping to get a boat. Just It's about a quarter mile to the clinic from here. Houston was in over its head. Oh, yeah. Gotcha. Rescues became a daily, even hourly drama. The current was, you know, getting, getting, getting hot. We had to bust a window to get out. Houston Mayor Sylvester Turner had decided against evacuating residents in America's fourth largest city. You cannot evacuate 6.5 million people. Within two days, you cannot. That would be chaotic. You would be, we, would have, we would be putting people more in arms' way. So in one of America's most flood-prone major cities, relentless rains swamped neighborhoods and highways. A dangerous water world trapped tens of thousands of residents. Life and death 911 calls scaled beyond the capacity of first responders. I ask for volunteers to come forward with uh, boats and high-water vehicles. Where are you? A civilian Navy responded. Neighbor rescued neighbor in private boats and high-water vehicles. Harvey became an all-hands-on-deck moment. This was my family. I'd hope somebody would come for them. We knew that we had a lot of civilians with boats that wanted to help. Art Acevedo is Houston's police chief. They had courage, integrity, intestinal fortitude, and as a result of them willing to get in the water and get in these boats, I, I know for a fact that a lot of people lived because of them. Harvey's new flood became evacuees. Houston's convention center became its major shelter. Nearly 10,000 people poured in, doubling its original capacity. Two Mattress Mac furniture stores became temporary housing for people with no place else to go. We thank Mr. Mack for opening up his doors to us because we didn't know where our next meal was going to come from or, or clothes on our back. Mr. Mack is owner Jim Mackingbell. We're going to keep these folks here as long as they need to be here. They may be here three days, they may be here seven, who knows. We're here to help and that's what we do, that's who we are. But the lifeline came too late for some. Water swept away a van killing six members of the Saldivar family an elderly couple, and four of their great-grandchildren. Three-year-old Jordan Grace survived in floodwaters, clinging to her dead mother's body. The little girl told rescuers, Mama was saying her prayers. If you lose one life, that's one life you didn't want to lose. Again, Mayor Turner. But considering the enormity of the storm and the amount of rainfall that occurred, uh, the number of, of lives that have been lost, it's, it's much lower than what it could have been. In Crosby, Texas, east of Houston, explosions and a massive fire broke out at this chemical plant. Forty inches of rain flooded out its power and refrigeration capabilities. Volatile organic peroxides could burn for days. As floodwaters receded in Houston, Harvey returned with a vengeance along the Texas Gulf Coast. Rains lashed cities like 
Port Arthur, and Beaumont. The initial estimate of property damages was $30 billion, less than 40% of it covered by insurance. Many Houston neighborhoods could remain uninhabitable for weeks. One of the signs that people will look to and what's important is how quickly that debris is being removed. What we are needing from FEMA is an advanced payment on debris removal. Give me a sense of the kind of check you're looking for as a down payment. De debris removal for the city of Houston, just for the city of Houston alone, could be anywhere between $250, $300 million. Total damage and cleanup costs could reach $75 billion, making Harvey the second most costly natural disaster in U.S. history, behind only Katrina. Its legacy of ruin will challenge Houston for the next decade. We have always faced challenges. That's who we are. But this is a city of hope and opportunity. And this is a city that will come back stronger than it has ever been. For that, I have no doubt. Ahead, donate it with the best of intentions. Americans in every part of the country are donating to the relief efforts in Texas and Louisiana. It's natural to want to give, natural to want to help. But as Scott Simon of NPR tells us, sometimes the best intentions can be misplaced. The aftermath of Hurricane Harvey reminds us all over again that when nature grows savage and angry, Americans can get generous and kind. That's admirable. It might also be a problem. Generally, after a disaster, people with loving intentions donate things that cannot be used in a disaster response and, in fact, may actually be harmful. And they have no idea that they're doing it. Juanita Rilling is the former director of the Center for International Disaster Information in Washington, D.C. She spent more than a decade trying to tell well-meaning people to think before they give. Hurricane Mitch, Honduras, 1998. More than 11,000 people died. More than a million and a half were left homeless. And Juanita Rilling got a wake-up call. Got a call from one of our logistics experts who said that a plane full of supplies could not land because there was clothing on the runway. It's in boxes and bales. It takes up yards of space. It can't be moved. Well, well, whose clothing is it? What is it? He said, well, I don't know whose it is, but there's a high-heeled shoe, just one, and a bale of winter coats. And I thought, winter coats? It's summer in Honduras. Humanitarian workers call the crush of useless, often incomprehensible contributions the second disaster. Hey. The Indian Ocean tsunami, 2004, a beach in Indonesia piled with used clothing. There's no time for disaster workers to sort and clean old clothes, so the contributions just sit and rot. So this very quickly went toxic and had to be destroyed and local officials poured gasoline on it and set it on fire and then it was out to sea. So rather than clothing somebody it went up in flames? Correct. The thinking is that these people have lost everything so they must need everything. So people send everything. You know any donation is crazy if it's not needed. People have donated prom gowns and wigs and tiger costumes and pumpkins and frostbite cream to Rwanda and used tea bags because you can always get another cup of tea. You may not think that sending bottles of water to devastated people seems crazy, but Juanita Rilling points out... This water, it's about 100,000 liters, will provide drinking water for 40,000 people for one day, um, this amount of water to send from the United States, say, to West Africa, and people did this, mm -hmm. costs about $300,000. But relief organizations with portable water purification units can produce the same amount, 100,000 liters of water, for about $300. And then there were warm-hearted American women who wanted to send breast milk to nursing mothers in Haiti after the 2010 earthquake. 
it sounds wonderful, but in the midst of a crisis, it's actually one of the most challenging things. Rebecca Gustafson, a humanitarian aid expert, has worked on the ground after many disasters. Breast milk doesn't stay fresh for very long. And the challenge is, what happens if you do give it to an infant who then gets sick? 617 New York School. Caller is indicating she thinks there's someone shooting in the building. December 2012, Newtown, Connecticut. A gunman killed 20 children and six adults at Sandy Hook Elementary School. When did stuff start arriving? Uh, almost instantaneously. Chris Kelsey worked for Newtown at the time. They had to get a warehouse to hold all the teddy bears. Was there a need for teddy bears? I think it was a nice gesture. There was a need to, to do something for the, the kids. There was a need to make people feel better. Uh, I think the, the wave of stuff we got was a little overwhelming. How many teddy bears? I think it was about 67,000. 67,000 teddy bears? 67,000 teddy bears. It wasn't limited to teddy bears. There was also thousands of boxes of school supplies yeah. and thousands of boxes of toys, bicycles, sleds, clothes. Newtown had been struck by mass murder, not to tsunami. I, I think a lot of the stuff that came into the warehouse was more for the people that sent it than it was for the people in Newtown. Uh, at least that's the way it felt at the end. Every child in Newtown got a few bears. The rest had to be sent away, along with the bikes and blankets. There are times when giving things works. As many as 50 million people along the East Coast are in the path of this hurricane. More than 650,000 homes were destroyed or damaged in Hurricane Sandy in 2012. Thousands of people lost everything. We were able to respond in a way that the big bureaucratic agencies can't. In fact, Tammy Shapiro is one of the organizers of Occupy Sandy, which grew out of the Occupy Wall Street movement. When the hurricane struck, they had a network of activists connected and waiting. Very quickly, we just stopped taking clothes. They created a relief supply registry by using a wedding registry. And we put the items that we needed donated on that registry. And then people who wanted to donate could buy the items that were needed. I mean, a lot of what we had on the wedding registry was diapers. They needed um, flashlights. How transportable is your experience mm -hmm. here uh, following Hurricane Sandy? For me, the network is key. Who has the knowledge? Where are spaces that um, goods can live if there's a disaster? Who's really well connected on their blocks? This was taken in Port-au-Prince in Haiti. Juanita Rilling's album of disaster images shows shot after shot of good intentions just spoiling in warehouses or rotting on the landscape. This is heartbreaking. It is heartbreaking. It's heartbreaking for the donor. It's heartbreaking for the relief organizations. And it's heartbreaking for survivors. This is why cash donations are so much more effective. They buy exactly what people need when they need it. And cash donations enable relief organizations to purchase supplies locally, which ensures that they're fresh and familiar to survivors, purchased in just the right quantities, and delivered quickly. And those local purchases support the local merchants, which strengthens the local economy for the long run. Disaster response worker Rebecca Gustafson. Most people want to donate something that's theirs. And Money sometimes doesn't feel personal enough for people. They don't feel like enough of their heart and soul is in that donation, that check that they would send. The reality is it's one of the most compassionate things that people can do. For a list of ways you can help in the aftermath of Hurricane Harvey, really help, you can go to our website at cbssundaymorning.com. You can't eat these, otherwise you'd get a mouthful of felt. But these stuffed grocery items were actually pretty popular. Just a taste of the pop-up art that popped up this summer. The 8 till late corner store popped up in New York this summer, and it was unlike any shopping experience the city had seen. Campbell's tomato soup cans went very quick. Champagne, uh, the Murray and Shandon, is just flying off the shelf. I, I can't make it fast enough. British artist Lucy Sparrow created an entire convenience store out of nothing but felt. Chips, 
soda cans, candy, you name it. 9,000 items, all researched to look just like the real thing, but all as soft as a pillow. Felt is a material that's synonymous with childhood. It's brightly colored. You know, coming in here is like regression therapy for, for anyone. It's, it's very childlike, it's very dreamlike. It was an instant hit on social media and among budding art collectors. The whole fuzzy shop sold out in a matter of days. From bodega to barge we go, where the Windy City set sail with an art museum that drifted down the Chicago River. All these artists are really amazingly talented. Its aim was to take an industrial piece of equipment and use it to ship art to parts of the city that might not otherwise have access to a museum. It docked multiple times along the route, creating pop-up galleries right on the river's edge. And in Fort Worth, it was a Polaroid pop-up. Long before the iPhone gave us instant gratification, the Polaroid was inspiring amateur photographers and inspiring artists, too. The Eamon Carter Museum of American Art set about exploring just how artists like Andy Warhol and Chuck Close used those instant images in their works, embracing the new technology in a way Polaroid might never have imagined. Just a few of the exhibits that got us thinking differently about everyday things this summer, reminding us that art can be just about everywhere we look. Still to come, the town that does windows. Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it. This Labor Day is all about honoring workers, but sometimes a job is more than a job. When there's a shared vision, it can make all the difference. Connor Knighton takes us to a manufacturer in Minnesota to see for himself. These pieces of pine may not be much to look at, but after they're sliced into different sizes, sorted and stacked, shaped and sanded, they start to transform into something you might look through. The windows that eventually end up inside of homes like these are formed inside of this two million square foot factory, the headquarters of the Marvin Window and Door Company. Every product here is made to order and made in America. Just barely. Marvin is located six miles away from Canada in the tiny town of War Road, Minnesota. How many people work for Marvin in War Road? It's about 2,400. And what's the population? 1,700. So more people work for Marvin than even live in the entire town. That's true. Paul Marvin is the company's CEO. For the past four generations, his family has been this small town's largest employer. When great-grandpa George was starting up Marvin Lumber and Cedar Company in 1912, he went on the record a few years later as saying, you know, the reason I did it is because some of my friends couldn't find jobs. And if I didn't find jobs for them, they were going to leave Warroad. The company moved from lumber into windows, but it never left Warroad. Not when the factory burned to the ground in 1961. Not when the construction business collapsed in 2008. Marvin's dedication to the local community has brought it national attention. The family business in War Road, Minnesota, that didn't lay off a single one of their 4,000 employees when the recession hit. Kermit Jensen has been at Marvin for 32 years. We make wood parts right here. He's held a variety of titles, but he'd be the first to tell you they don't really matter. What we do doesn't define what we are. It's who we are that defines what we do. And what Marvin employees did during the recession was cut back on hours and perks so that newer employees like Tiffany Runnels could stay on the job. Working here, you almost feel like you're, it's a community within a community. In a small community like this, when your coworkers are your neighbors, business is done a little differently. Whether we see them 
in church or at the grocery store or at the hockey rink, and we do, we want to be able to look them in the eye and say, we did right by you. A quick note about that hockey rink, by the way. It's huge. War Road's other major export is hockey. Eight Olympians, several NHL stars, and more college players than they can count. But it's the work that's kept people in this town. That and the views worth building a wall of windows to take in. Not everybody's a friend or neighbor, but, but there's a lot of people that, that treat you as a friend or a neighbor. When Bob Marvin retired from the family business, he couldn't imagine living anywhere else. He stayed in War Road to serve as mayor. The trucks that leave this factory every day are carrying windows destined for homes all across America. But Marvin will always have one home. Hockey Town, USA, War Road, Minnesota. Next, the platinum brilliance of Blondie's Debbie Harry. And later, the Trumps of America, men work in two places, gold mines and Goldman Sachs. The comedian the White House loves to hate. It's Sunday morning on CBS, and here again is Lee Cowan. Call Me was a big hit for the group Blondie and lead singer Debbie Harry back in 1980. She's still calling the shots in her band, and with our Tracy Smith this morning, she offers a summer song. It's been more than 40 years since Blondie first appeared on the New York punk rock scene. But when Debbie Harry sings, it's 1979 all over again. She's the voice and the face of a band whose name was inspired by a New York City catcall. Did people yell Blondie to you on the street? Was that part of it? Don't they yell that to you? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, <laughs> hey, Red. Hey, Blondie. Uh, I but mean, I like that you took that and made it yours and the band's. It seemed pretty obvious. It, it was, a, you know, I felt that it had, was something so deeply uh, embedded in, in everyone's consciousness that it was a no-brainer. Since then, the band has sold more than 40 million records. And Debbie Harry has become one of music's best-known and best-loved voices. Born in Miami and adopted as a baby, Deborah Ann Harry grew up in middle-class New Jersey. I came from a fairly conservative, uh, small-town kind of upbringing, and I guess I wanted out. <laughs> and you found a way. I got out. out. <laughs> yeah. She moved to New York and was singing with a small club act when she met guitarist Chris Stein, with whom she co-founded Blondie in 1974. And I just thought Debbie was really great. That was, that was pretty much it. When you say really great, was there something about Debbie that was... I like to think I saw what everybody else saw later on, but it was a little more focused maybe at that point. Focused, indeed. Stein, a renowned photographer, saw Harry both as an object of affection and an irresistible subject. The band became a mainstay of the New York punk scene and regulars at CBGB, the famed music club on a seedy block of New York's Lower East Side. The former CBGB is now an upscale clothing store. It was fun. <laughs> it was fun. I mean, that's yeah, the thing. It was, was kind of nasty and kind of fun. Yeah, I, I guess I think, you know, when everything is not so precious, and so valuable, you know, people get a lot more creative and, uh, you know, enjoy life a little bit because they really have to. And that was you. Yeah. In those days, Blondie was big overseas but didn't have a major hit in the U.S. Then came 1978 and the album Parallel Lines. Well, 
Heart of Glass, co-written by Harry, became one of the biggest records of the year. For Debbie Harry, the years that followed were a whirlwind of writing, recording, performing, and not much else. You don't have kids of your own. Was that a deliberate decision, I don't want to have them, or was it a timing thing? Both. We worked for like seven years pretty much without, without stopping. And that's, that's really what took its toll. And in 1982, everything seemed to fall apart. The group broke up, and Chris Stein developed a debilitating autoimmune disorder. I was really worn out, but the drugs really exacerbated everything, I always think. How bad was it? Just, you know, blisters and boils all over your skin, so I was all messed up, and I was in a hospital for three months up at Lenox Hill. I missed the whole winter. It got ugly, but Harry stayed with him through it all. It was above and beyond the call of duty. Stein recovered, and so did the band. Blondie reformed in 1997, and they've been together, more or less, ever since. Debbie Harry's influence can still be felt and heard. In 2013, British pop group One Direction borrowed a Blondie classic for the charity Comic Relief. And this Chris Stein photo of Debbie was the inspiration for Margot Robbie's Harley Quinn outfit in 2016's Suicide Squad. What? When you see that, hey yeah. what do you think? Oh, I was happy, yeah, it's fine. You like it? Yeah. Come on, let's go. She looked better than I did, and I didn't like that. <laughs> I don't think you can argue that. No, that's not true. Well, her butt looked better. Truth is, at 72, Debbie Harry still has a look people imitate, and she never stopped writing songs, often with former boyfriend Chris Stein. How do you think it is that you've managed to remain bandmates and really friends? Yeah. Greed. <laughs> <laughs> Whatever the motivation, Blondie continues to inspire. Last month, the artist Shepard Ferry created this tribute to the band on a New York City wall. But her legacy isn't the only thing on Debbie Harry's mind these days. This is. Harry's become an advocate for bees, sounding the alarm about declining bee populations and their importance in food production. Blondie's latest album is called Pollinator, and Harry often shows up in bee-themed headgear on tour and for our interview. It's a terrific little headband. And do you feel like you're having some effect? Yeah, I think so. I get a lot of, uh, lot of information, a lot of people, you know, writing and saying, oh, my dad was a beekeeper, I'm a beekeeper. There are a lot of beekeepers, but there are problems with... Uh, diseases and, you know, being, having successful hives and, and competing with the, uh, you know, problems in the environment, you know, the, the, the demise of our precious environment. Debbie Harry is well aware of her influence on music and culture today. She also knows that there are things she can't control. Is aging something that... It's horrible. <laughs> it is kind of horrible. Your head is the same. I'm still like 25 in my head, but um, you know, I hesitate to dress like a 25-year-old. Do you still feel 25? In my head, yeah. I, I'm fortunate. I, you know, I've always been blessed with good health, so can't complain about that, really. Can't really complain. I do, but I, I shouldn't. <laughs> We're not complaining either. You might say Debbie Harry's a bit like that Shepherd Fairy mural. Larger than life. And forever young. It happened this past week. A yawning gap in our knowledge filled at last. Humans do it. Chimps do it. Even educated dogs do it. We all do it. Yawning. 
when we see or even hear someone else yawning. And in the latest issue of the journal Current Biology, a group of researchers sets out to solve the mystery about why it is so contagious. Don't yawn now, just pay attention. The researchers showed 36 adults video clips of people yawning and then instructed them to alternate between trying to resist their own yawns and yawning as much as they liked. The result? Well, what the researchers concluded was that instructions to resist yawning increase the urge to yawn. In other words, fighting contagious yawning can actually feed contagious yawning. No wonder we all do it. (sighs) Ahead. Thank you. I appreciate it. Steve Hartman on the hearts that came out of Harvey. Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it. For everything that Hurricane Harvey took away, thousands of helping hands tried to restore. A storm of kindness that moved our Steve Hartman. This past week, we saw what trillions of gallons of water can cover. But more importantly, we saw what it can uncover our potential as a nation. I know it seems like eons ago, but remember what was in the news before this? Remember when nothing was more important in America than the fate of a Confederate statue? We were literally at each other's throats over race, religion, immigration, and of course, politics. And then Harvey came and pounded us with perspective. When the roof over your head becomes the floor beneath your feet, No one cares about the color or creed of his rescuer. No one passes judgment because a hero's boat is too big or his means are too meager. No one says, thanks for the rope, but I'd rather wait for someone more like me. And later, when they find themselves on the business end of a dump truck with nothing but the soggy shirt on their backs, I'm guessing no one ever thinks he's better than the person suffering next to him. A lot of people in Texas and Louisiana lost everything but they are rich with perspective this morning and blessed with a new and priceless appreciation of their community. If everyone did this, we'd have a lot less to worry about. From the start of the storm, the volunteer rescuers were Harvey's silver lining. They risked their lives, some even lost their lives, in service to their neighbors. Continue helping people. We're gonna go save some more lives, help some more people. This guy spoke for many. Spirit of Texas, that's what it's all about. But I do take slight issue with that last part. I think most Americans are heroes, just waiting for their moment. And if Harvey taught us anything, it's to be grateful for every last one of them. Which brings me to this rescue in Houston. These people were trying to save someone from a sinking car. I don't know who these folks are, but I do know this. If you took out a Christian, took out a Democrat, an immigrant, a Republican, Muslim, or Jew, Remove any link in this brave chain of Americans. The whole group is adrift, and a piece of humanity is lost. In this case, the chain held. When Mother Nature is at its worst, human nature is at its best. The challenge will be, as the floodwaters recede, will we still be able to love at these same record levels? Next, Alec Baldwin on a roll, playing the role of a president. And later, some black dude said, he said, man, what kind of Negroes are these? <laughs> black Panther co-founder Bobby Seale on activism, then and now. I am nothing like Nixon because I am not a crook, okay? Plus, I bet Nixon only got one scoop of ice cream for dessert but I get two scoops, okay? Two scoops, two scoops anyway, okay? It's Sunday morning on CBS, and here again is Lee Cowan. That's just one of Alec Baldwin's portrayals of President Trump, and we're told to expect lots more in the upcoming TV season. Rita Braver has our Sunday profile. I want to know the secrets of Saturday Night Live. You know, what's funny about this show is no matter how many times you host the show, you are not in mafia terms, 
a made man, a made member, <laughs> unless you were in the cast of the show. Made member or not, Alec Baldwin has hosted Saturday Night Live a record 17 times since 1990. This is my 17th time. Thank you. He's earned his place on the SNL Wall of Fame. There I am a million years ago when I had dark hair. Oh my look at gosh, me. Look at that. Look at how sweet I look. Was that deceptive? No. <laughs> no, I was so sweet. But sweet is probably not how you describe the portrayal that just earned him an Emmy nomination for Best Supporting Actor in a Comedy Series. Retweet. Google. What is ISIS? In Trump's America, men work in two places, gold mines and Goldman Sachs. This is where the set... This, this is, is where it really happens. This is where That's Trump is made. Sometimes it's different colors. Mm -hmm. it's, yeah, it's we more I'll things. add color or change We follow by what he's doing. Yeah. They're not putting stuff on your face to do that, are they? That's the face that Trump <laughs> insisted I make. There was no other choice. <laughs> when I said Trump, he was like very angry and very pissed off all the time. No, 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 no refugees. America first, Australia sucks, your reef is failing, prepare to go to war. <laughs> Baldwin says he practices a lot just before he takes the stage. And I sit in a chair, and you think that I'm in a mental institution. Because <laughs> for like 30 minutes, I just sit there and go, Gina, 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 Gina. Have you gotten mostly a positive response or do people go after you because they're Trump fans? 60 to 75% of the people that encounter me treat me like I was Jonas Salk and I had cured <laughs> polio. They walk up to me and go, my God, thank you. My, I can't thank you enough. That's what you're doing is so important. Now 59, Alec Baldwin was just a boy when he developed his gift for mimicry. I learned all my accents from Mel Blanc. Remember Bugs Bunny? Every little breeze seems to whisper Louise, the birds in the trees. Today, Baldwin spends as much time as possible in East Hampton, Long Island. This is my home. This has been my legal residence since uh, 1987. This fashionable beach town is just 75 miles, but a far cry from suburban Massapequa, Long Island, where he grew up. As he detailed in his recent memoir, Nevertheless, Baldwin was set on making it, not as an actor, but as a lawyer. You're very clear that being financially stable was always a big deal for you, given your upbringing. Yeah, that, that was, I think, glaringly and clearly the one big problem for my parents. Six children. Six children. Yeah, my dad was a teacher. I think, we, I think my dad saved his first pay stub from work, his first year teaching. He was paid $4,400. Alec Baldwin started out as a political science major at George Washington University in D.C., but decided to transfer to New York University to study acting. My mother screamed at me for like a half an hour when I said I was not going to go to law school. And when I explained to my parents that going to NYU would cost them less money because of the loans I got from NYU, my father said, let's hear him out. <laughs> he started getting work even before he finished college. You liked acting once you started doing it. Six months went by, and I thought, this is really not easy to do. It is challenging. It isn't frivolous. And, I, and gradually, month after month after month, I became more enamored of it. But he also confesses that he became enamored of cocaine and alcohol. I found an answer. A way out of the trouble that I plunged And while a cast member on the hit TV series, Knott's Landing... You've been bad, but now you have to be punished. He hit an all-time low. You write about a really harrowing day and night in which you essentially overdosed and almost right. died. Right, right, 19... I did not know that about you. Well, I didn't really talk about it that much. That's a profound part of my life that affected my life was giving up drinking and taking drugs so early on. I was 26 when I got sober. But there's still been plenty of drama. Baldwin's book delves into his stormy first marriage to actress Kim Basinger and an infamous voicemail he left for their daughter, Ireland. You don't have the brains or the genius to 
that you're 12 years old or 11 years old. The two made up long ago. Then there's the 2013 incident when Baldwin was accused, falsely he says, of using a homophobic slur when a paparazzo got too close to his current wife, Ilaria, and their baby. Baldwin says writing about it all was a learning experience. What was the biggest thing you learned? Uh, that's, um, I'm glad you asked that. <laughs> that uh, uh, the past is the past. I, I, I truly bury my past with this book. I never want to talk about the past anymore. But what a past it's been. Baldwin has appeared in scores of plays, TV shows, and films. None more popular than his role as Jack Donaghy on 30 Rock. Cookie in the middle of the day? I gave blood. Does that burn calories? But these days, Alec Baldwin says his career takes second place to his family. He has three young children with his 33-year-old wife, Alaria, a yoga and fitness expert. Where are you, bud? Hi! Who dropped by our interview with their son, Raphael. He's like, I don't want to be on TV like my sister, Carmen. And why you bud? She's a lot younger than I am. She could have married a lot of different people. And I'm very grateful and very lucky. And we have three kids, and that is the only thing I care about now. We believe in Hillary Clinton. Baldwin does have another interest, politics. An outspoken liberal, he's toyed with the idea of running for office. Would you ever consider no. running for president? You no. wouldn't. No, 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 no. A Baldwin-Trump race would be right, a right. lot of fun. Well, but no, but, well, but I, think it, I think it would be a lot of fun, actually. Now that you say that, maybe I'll reconsider that. But I've got little kids, and that would be, that, that would, I would never see them. I made phone calls, I jumped into a truck, and I posed for pictures, I went, oh. And for those wondering, this fall, Baldwin has signed up to wear that yellow wig again on the new season of SNL. I sat down with our military, we looked at the map, and I asked the hard questions like, which one is Afghanistan? And all you have to do is just go, and make the face, and people go hysterical crying. Or you have to just suggest the voice. I go, ladies and gentlemen, and people just cackle laughing. So it's become a big deal. So basically, it's pretty good to be you these days. It's very good. Coming up, Hurricane Harvey, adding it all up. Now, a look at Hurricane Harvey and its aftermath by the numbers. The storm dumped up to 51.88 inches of rain. That's a record for the continental United States. That all adds up to an estimated 27 trillion gallons of rainwater across Texas and Louisiana over just a six-day period. At least 6,800 homes were destroyed, and another 84,000 have been damaged. Just 28% of residents of Harris County, which includes Houston, are believed to have flood insurance. More than 20,000 rescues have been reported. 37,000 people across Texas were still living in shelters as of Friday night. FEMA says it's approved aid for 103,000 people so far, more than $66 million in all. As of Saturday, storm damage to area refineries pushed the price of gas to a national average of $2.59 a gallon. That's up 23 cents in a week. And the total economic cost of Harvey and the cleanup is estimated between 40 and $75 billion. Ahead. This was all power to all the people. We was beyond just power to black people. The Black Panther Party and lessons for today. Half a century has passed since the Black Panthers first came on the scene. They were champions of equality to some, but dangerous subversives to others. The surviving Panthers, including one of its most prominent leaders, are still working to make their party's case. All power to the people. All power to the people. The Black Panther Party may have dissolved more than 30 years ago, but you'd never know it from the looks of this gathering at an Oakland restaurant. They had reconvened briefly to celebrate the 80th birthday of one of the Black Panther's founders, Bobby Seale. Comrade Chairman, Bobby Seale. 
He's a little rounder these days and perhaps a little slower. I did not want to be walking over like this. <laughs> okay. But at 80, Seal hasn't lost a flicker of the fire that helped change the political landscape of the 1960s. This was all power to all the people. We was beyond just power to black people. Power to the people. Time hasn't dulled the sharpness of their swagger, the leather jackets, the berets, and the guns. For many, the Black Panthers and their defiant image remain as relevant and as controversial today as ever. Take Beyonce. When her dancers borrowed the Panthers' iconic look at last year's Super Bowl, both praise and criticism flew. It was a complete revelation, I think, to how the Panthers continue to capture the imagination. It was important to, for folks to feel what going through a newspaper was. Rene de Guzman curated the All Power of the People exhibit at the Oakland Museum. Not in my wildest dreams would I imagine a Black Panther show being a blockbuster. Perhaps that's because the Panthers have become as much pop culture as political party. Their message was branded with contemporary but often inflammatory artwork. They were the first to use the term pig to refer to the police, which to this day remains as offensive to police officers as the Black Panthers intended it to be. Why a pig? A pig for them was a dirty animal. It was an animal without morals, and it was also a very dangerous animal. We've got to get rid of the pig. Their approach raised eyebrows and tempers all around the country, but they were not without structure. Seal wrote a strict 10-point platform, the party's founding principles, on this legal pad that somehow managed to survive all these years. This is all your handwriting. This is all my handwriting, my printing. He hasn't seen it in years, but can recite every word of it to this day. We want freedom and power to determine our own destinies. It demanded, among other things, access to better housing, education, and an end to police brutality. Do you think this is still relevant today? Every nickel of it. Grim-faced and silent, a file of angry young Negroes. The Panthers first got national attention when members marched, armed, to the floor of the California State Assembly taking advantage of the gun laws at the time that allowed a firearm to be carried openly. The armed band forced its way past surprised and bewildered state police. It wasn't just a stunt. Bobby Seal of Oakland read a statement protesting the killing of a young Negro. It was an extension of the Panthers' armed citizen patrols. They had been formed to monitor, some would say intimidate, police. Cops says, you can't observe me, and we recite the law. You cannot remove a person's property from without due process law. Step back, you cannot touch my weapon. It is private property. And some black dude said, he said, man, what kind of Negroes it is? <laughs> Seal was chairman of the Black Panthers, while Huey P. Newton was its minister of defense. In 1967, he was arrested for fatally shooting an Oakland police officer. Free Huey became the party's rallying cry. And after four trials, Newton's case was eventually dismissed. How much did Huey's trial really galvanize the movement? It wasn't Huey. Dr. Martin Luther King getting killed galvanized the movement. The tone of a Black Panther rally was more in your face than the often polite protests of Dr. King. Although they claimed that this was all about self-defense, they also called for revolution, a violent one if need be. You can jail a revolution, but you can't jail a revolution. Many critics saw it not as a movement, but as a criminal enterprise filled with those willing to sacrifice anything for the cause. Who does the power belong to? The black people. All the poor We knew that the system that had enslaved us could not remain in place because it was that system of capitalism on the backs of African slaves that created our state of oppression. Elaine Brown rose to become the first female chair of the Black Panther Party. For me, there was no turning back. Once you say you believe in something, you're ready to live and die for it, then that's what you do. Some did die on both sides of the struggle. When police raided a Panther headquarters in Chicago, a shootout left one of the movement's most charismatic leaders, Fred Hampton, dead. And all hell broke loose. Murder. The pigs murdered. Uh, Deputy Chairman Fred Hampton, why he lay in bed. The Panthers called it murder. Police called it self-defense. The immediate violent criminal reaction of the occupants in shooting at announced police officers 
emphasizes the extreme viciousness of the Black Panther Party. We were, from the beginning almost, the targets of the federal government. Uh, J. Edgar Hoover, by 1968, was saying the Black Panther Party was the greatest threat to internal security of the United States. I'm not thinking of a public announcement on this, incidentally. Hoover even brought his concerns about the Panthers to President Nixon, who could be heard on a telephone call pondering how the FBI could be used against them. On a case-by-case -case basis, you could determine that you would want the bureau to get in. In other words, where you sort of had the scent or the smell of of a na of a of, of the national conspiracy thing, you know, the the kind of thing like the Panthers and Black all that. Panthers, all these right. Democratic society, something that's where, where it's basically that kind of a of an action. Found the tape, baby. Smoking gun evidence that the Nixon administration, starting with Nixon himself, this dude was given directives to get rid of these Black Panthers. Now Age we, has we mellowed Bobby Seale's view of marrying activism place. and guns. Case in point, the Black Lives Matter movement, also born in Oakland, that is still fighting police brutality 50 years later. When kids come up and ask your advice today about guns, you tell them... You don't need guns today. The cell phone is the best piece of technology we got to observe cops. You can have an international cop watch program <laughs> without a gun. That's where Seal says the Panthers went wrong, letting their militant protests overshadow what he saw as their larger purpose, community service. The Panthers organized free breakfast programs for kids long before public schools in this country started doing the very same thing. There were health clinics too, food drives, voter registration drives, even an ambulance service. The purpose of the Panther programs was to provide a model a living model for what American government should be doing. Stephen Shames documented it all as the Panthers' unofficial photographer. This was in Palo Alto. I love this picture. It was the softer side of the Panthers that his photos often captured. Many never saw the light of day until he compiled them into a book for the Panthers' 50th anniversary. Panthers were parents. Panthers were lovers. You see the Panthers with their wives and girlfriends. You see the Panthers with their children. And you just see the tenderness. I think that's what didn't come out with the militant image that was in the media, marching, wearing the leather jackets, wearing the berets. The party was not just some group of thugs or social do-gooders or do-batters, if you like. We were an organization that had goals and had an agenda and had an ideology. And that shapes everything I do uh, right now and has uh, for the past 40 years. Elaine Brown continued working as a community organizer and activist long after the Black Panthers began to fray as a party back in the early 80s. She worked for prison reform then, and she still does. She recently organized this urban garden, for example, to help inmates, who she says were jailed unfairly because of their race, get a new start by selling the produce that they plant and pick. This is a continuation of what we did do in many ways. It's not exactly, but it's what I can do. A bright corner in this still impoverished section of West Oakland, where the Panthers were born. By the way, it wasn't just former Black Panthers who were at that party for Bobby Seale. There were plenty of young activists there, too, looking to an older generation for answers about race and justice and how best to affect the change that the Panthers had hoped would have come long ago. I'm Lee Cowan. Jane Polly will be right back here next Sunday morning. In the meantime, we hope you enjoyed the rest of your day. If you like 60 Minutes, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at wondery.com survey.
I'm CBS News correspondent Major Garrett, host of the podcast Agent of Betrayal, The Double Life of Robert Hansen. During the Cold War, FBI agent Robert Hansen traded classified secrets to the Kremlin in exchange for cash and jewels. In the podcast, you'll hear from Hansen's closest friends, family members, victims, and colleagues for the most comprehensive telling of who Robert Hansen really was. Binge the entire series now. Agent of Betrayal, The Double Life of Robert Hansen is available on the Wondery app, Amazon Music, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, this is Jill Schlesinger, CBS News business analyst, certified financial planner, and host of the Money Watch podcast. This is the show where your money is not scary. It is a show that's all about you. It's your questions that make it possible for me to provide unconventional and entertaining insights on your money, and maybe more importantly, on your life. Follow Money Watch wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen ad-free on the Amazon Music or Wondery app.